everyone, it's Jeff from MCS Mag, and let me tell you, it's very rare to get any type of practical advice on self-protection during times of civil unrest. And it's even harder to get advice from someone who has actually been in the eye of the storm during a full-blown riot and lived to tell about it. That's why I was so excited to get on the phone with our newest MCS network expert, because he has a world of experience when it comes to the most harrowing life-or-death armed defense scenarios including one of our country's most famous all-out street wars during a complete urban meltdown. Forget the fantasy stuff, my friends. You are in for a real treat with the insights this guest has. And I highly suggest you check out his training once you hear for yourself that what he teaches is the real thing. Let's go ahead and get started. Check this out. bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. There was a time when one of the best examples of the dangers you could face during a riot or other examples of social chaos was the Los Angeles riots, which took place after the infamous Rodney King trial. When the police officers who beat King were cleared of wrongdoing, rightly or wrongly, the L.A. area erupted in violence. Now, in one awful example of what can happen to innocent civilians during a riot, a man named Reginald Denny was dragged from his truck and beaten. His crime? He was simply the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, if you think this sort of thing can't happen to you, the recent turmoil in Ferguson and other high-profile protests of alleged police brutality or other supposed civil rights violations should have shown you that this type of violence can happen to anyone, anywhere. And even if you have a gun, even if you're a trained, prepared, armed citizen, a lot of what you think you know goes out the window when a riot or other mass panic grips an urban or suburban area. So what do you do when things go to hell and you find yourself surrounded by a flash mob, rioters, looters, or some other group of angry or desperate citizens? The people you think of as your neighbors all have a breaking point. And when they reach it, you don't want to be caught in the middle. Now, if you are, you'll want the lessons that real armed professionals have learned during times of unrest and social chaos. Lessons learned and taught as tactical training by professionals like our special guest today. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare for your role as a protector and a patriot. And I'm really excited with who we have with us today because he has some rare, real-world experience with the topic that we're going to be covering. So please welcome Scott Reitz to the program. Scott, thanks for taking some time for us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Now, this is going to be this is going to be really great. I've been looking forward to this all week. So, listen, everyone. Uh, Scott is a 30-year veteran of the LAPD who spent 10 years as a SWAT operator and instructor, and 15 years as the primary instructor for all advanced firearms in-service training for the LAPD across all of its 19 geographical divisions. Now, the primary firearms instructor for the elite metropolitan division of the LAPD, in charge of advanced training for specialized groups such as SIS, anti-terrorist division, internal affairs, undercover narcotics, and the LAFD arson squad, Scott has also taught U.S. Marines at Camp Pendleton and has been a deadly force and tactics expert witness in federal and superior court. 
Today, Scott is the head instructor for International Tactical Training Seminars, Incorporated, and the author of the book, The Art of Modern Gunfighting. Now, to learn more about Scott and his training and get a copy of his book, make sure that you visit him online at www.internationaltactical.com. All right, Scott, let's let's go ahead and talk about the lessons that you've learned and, and that you teach as a result of this type of civil unrest and mass violence. Now, in your book, The Art of Modern Gunfighting, you go into great detail about your experience during the L.A. riots in 1992. One of the most fascinating and even terrifying aspects of riots, civil unrest, and mob violence is the psychological changes that occur in people who are otherwise your neighbors, but then somehow change when they become part of like this desperate group of angry people. And I think it's a psychological fact that when people are stuck in this mob mentality, they tend to behave in ways that they definitely might not buy if they were just by themselves. You know, I think that when when you see that there's very little chance of being held accountable for your actions because maybe the like the local police are overwhelmed, you know, you, you see people's integrity kind of just go out the window and, and and this whole collective organism of this mass this mass chaos starts to move and commit acts of vandalism and violence almost like has a will of its own. So so here's my question. Based on your experience with the L.A. riots in 1992, what can you tell us about the psychology and the mentality of people who commit this type of mass violence? I mean, what what lessons can we take away from your experience when it comes to staying safe during times of civil unrest? Well, that's a wonderful question, and all your points are extremely valid. One of the interesting things that I found you know, I've been in Los Angeles police officer for many, many years when this occurred, and it absolutely took all of us by surprise from the time that the verdict had been read. It was within hours that, and remember today, with social media, with iPhones and so forth, I would say there that would be a massive accelerant for the message getting out <clears throat> that people are either rioting or causing you know, civil unrest or disturbance, so it will probably be most probably at an accelerated pace in this day and age. But even then, back then in 92, it happened within hours. And it was literally overwhelming. It was sparking all across the United, uh, all across Los Angeles. Uh, I described driving, uh, making sure my family was safe, number one, realizing that we were Code Alpha, which is everybody Code 3, Code Alpha down at Metro. So they realized this was way out of hand very, very quickly. And driving down, and I describe in the book how it looked like a scene out of a disaster film. There were giant palls of smoke that had uh, hung. There was an inversion layer, so they just hung over the city on the Santa Monica heading downtown. And there were fires everywhere, dozens and dozens of fires. There were cars on fire on the side uh, of the freeway, and it was it was otherworldly. And what you realize is that people, and what you said was spot on, and that is the fact that if you take away the social mores, that people who are otherwise constricted and bound to obey the law and perhaps within act within reason are pretty much out the window. And the biggest thing is a lot of the police just stayed at the command post. The only groups that went out were guys from Metropolitan Division, and I was one of those very first ones who ended up in that major firefight at 114th and Central, I described which lasted for about an hour and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Unbelievably intense. Yeah. And the interesting thing there is that, you know, here you are in Los Angeles, and it was literally, it sounded like a, there's somewhere somebody's got the tape, but it sounded like Vietnam. And those mm-hmm. were all incoming rounds coming at us from 
gang members went into the projects that had stolen guns and were shooting at, at us with rifles. And it absolutely astounded me that it wasn't one or two, but dozens of people that were armed and there were constant shootings. There were shots going off. Uh, Transformers had been shot. The city was blacked out. Couldn't get air units up because they'd get shot down. Fire, the firefighters we went to rescue on the 14th and Central, they had been shot up. Their rig was in the middle of the street. And absolute, basically almost a semi-war footing, if you will. It was total chaos. And it happens very, very quickly. And I would say one thing to your listeners, and that is one, you do have to kind of keep an ear to the rails, so to speak, as to what's transpiring in terms of news, in terms of civil unrest and so forth. And then you have to use some, you know, common sense. If you were going to go shopping, for for instance, and, you know, that day for something that's inconsequential and something goes on, perhaps I, you know, believe that uh, that shopping experience. In other words, kind of paying attention and using something which is fast going out of vogue in this day and age is common sense. In other words, you stay out of areas where there might be a problem. And you, you do have to keep apprised and, and abreast of what's going on in the news. And a simple shooting, if we, you've seen this recently, uh, a shooting con- which is controversial in nature can spark an entire riot such as we had in Baltimore. Now, whether the shooting's justified or not, it's inconsequential. It's how people react to it that is, that, that, you know, bears the ultimate consequence. So for your listeners, I would say you have to pay attention, as I say in my class, to detail and what's going on in the world, what's going on in your area. Yeah, and what really stands out for me, what you're saying also, is that, you know, you're right. Things can spread with the Internet nowadays very, very quickly. And But you can also use that to your advantage because I remember I was taking a, actually an escape and evasion class during, I think it was during the Trayvon Martin case was, was getting ready to, to go out. And there were planned protests. So people will use the Internet also to plan protests. And if you can try and use the internet to be able to find where maybe those plans you might you might look up and see oh my god that's that's three blocks away from me they're planning a protest you know that you might have just walked out your front door to go walk the dog and found out by mistake if you didn't if you didn't know about it so that's one thing but the i guess the biggest lesson like you say i mean it can turn into a war zone in a moment's notice and it that's shocking in and of itself and but to hear to hear your experience of you couldn't even get like air support in the air and basically you know the the law enforcement that was you know boots on the ground were in the middle of a firefight so for other people who weren't you know who were maybe being ravaged you know in, within the city you're kind of on your own i mean really i mean it'd be great to to take into account that the police are there but we saw even like in F- ferguson you know, police were in the areas where they needed to be together. It's not like there's going to be two-man teams running around a mob, you know, a mob-controlled area of of police officer. You know, where police officers is kind of out there on your own, coming ready to answer your 911 call. I mean, you really do need to take personal responsibility for your own protection. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, we, you know, I did, even in normal uh, non-riot type situation or civil unrest. You know, a normal response time for most departments is probably five minutes or out. A tremendous amount can transpire within a time frame mm-hmm. of five minutes. So you're pretty much on your own and right. You're definitely on your own. Nobody's going to be answering. They're, they're going to have, they will literally get shut down with 911 calls. And that's not going to happen. You are on your own. And my biggest thing is you basically hold in place, protect your family, and, uh, you know, just really, you know, you have to prepare ahead of time. Um, what's interesting is, of course, 
during the riots, everybody starts running to gun stores. Well, first of all, it's mild. I can own a Steinway. I can own a dozen Steinways. If I don't know how to play it, it means absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, the worst time to buy a gun is in the middle of the riot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so we're we're huge proponents of of people being trained properly. And being trained properly means you get it from accredited. Uh, instructors that are very honest about their background. This whole business has turned into something I'm not yeah. really fond of. Yeah. And who are honest about it and who have real world experience. Those who you go to, and those, and the people that are actually, there are very few that are deadly force experts out there, court qualified, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get the proper training, you get the proper tactical training, you get the proper safety manipulation and so forth. And what that does is that steads you very well in protecting yourself and your family. And if you can't protect yourself, then you can't protect your family. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward proposition. Yeah. So, but you have to do it beforehand. And it's not being paranoid. It's simply, you know, it, it's as if you were, it's basically preventative maintenance is what the Navy calls it. You know, you work on things before they fall down on a ship, before they break apart. Yeah. Uh, you know, the same thing with your vehicle. Well, a lot of people, they wait to the last minute. And, well, I think I'll go get a gun now. Well, that's not going to help you. Yeah. And unless you have the training, you're completely, you know, completely just toast when it gets down to it. And then people are, we had neighbors calling us, can you give us guns? No. No, we can't and we won't. Yeah. <laughs> that's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not the gun. It's the tactics and training that go, that go into using the gun. Yeah. Now, Absolutely. You, um, Scott, you offer several sections in your book on, on the mindset of defending yourself when armed. And a lot of us have, have taken classes where they may, and I may, I, I emphasize the word may, have touched on developing the appropriate mindset. But in most of those scenarios that have to do, you know, with a, they have to do with a one-on-one interaction in which, like you supposedly, you may have time to try and de-escalate the situation or verbalize a warning and then, and then aim your weapon and take your shot if you're forced to. But it seems to me that in a riot or other dangerous threat of civil unrest or, or like widespread panic, you'll be confronted with mobs of people, possibly all at the same time, and be, before you even know what's happening. So do the principles of decisiveness and aggression as part of the combat mindset still apply here? How does your, how does your mental focus change when dealing with this kind of mob or crowd threat? And what do people need to do to develop the right mindset for this type of a scenario? Well, absolutely. Um, I will give you a personal experience. During the riots, uh, it was many, you know, there are quite a few days of just nonstop shooting. Well, we were just, everybody, we were just on totally, uh, no downtime. And at one point, the gang members were caravanning. And when they were caravanning, they had, uh, they were having meetings. And since we didn't have air support, there was no way of knowing where these congregations, they were caravanning 30, 40 cars deep a lot of gang members. And at one point, just my partner and I, we were driving around in, in an unmarked vehicle, uh, what we call plain wrap crown Vic. And we were, came upon a, a park with probably, I don't know, 300 gang members in it. And we just looked at each other and go, okay. So we just stopped on the opposing side. We got out very quickly, dropped for brace nails with our rifles and the entire crowd. And there were tons of guns in there. There wasn't a shot fired. They, everybody took off. And it was interesting. You know, we never fired a shot, but just two guys against probably 300 in a park and knowing that there were, they were, you know, arms all over the place. Everybody's armed there. And not one single shot was fired at us. Not one single person 
made any type of aggressive move. Quite the contrary. They fled in the opposing direction. And it was very interesting to me. My partner and I kind of looked at each other like, well, that was interesting. So, you know, in some cases, when you're talking about being aggressive, there is... And I'm not talking about an out-of-control aggression. I'm not talking about one where you're just kind of freewheeling. But it's very it's very controlled. And you are maintaining your composure, and you're simply saying, look, I'm going to defend myself. You brought this to me. You brought the fight to me, so to speak. You brought the situation to me. I didn't bring it to you. And I'm going to pre- I'm prepared to defend myself and my family. This is what I'm going to do very calmly. At this point, it's your choice. And what's interesting is <clears throat> gang members, you know, you see it in Hollywood all the time how, you know, it's the old Bruce Lee thing. You know, Bruce Lee knocks out two or three people and the rest of the guys standing around, they keep on coming in, you know, one after another. In the real world, it really doesn't work like that. In the real world, if one or two go down, you know, when you have bad guys, the others sleep. You know, these aren't disciplined people. They're criminals. Hmm. And precisely due to the nature that they're not disciplined people is why they're involved in criminal activity or gangs. And whatever the sociological reasons are for this uh, are, you know, I don't know, and that will be debated till time immemorial. However, in most cases, the minute you are able to effectively, not ineffectively, but rather effectively neutralize, say, one or perhaps two people in a very short time frame, uh, everybody takes notice. And bad guys have a tremendous amount of self-preservational skill built into themselves. So they don't want to hang around if somebody can, you know, can, can effectively oppose them. And that's, that was one of the fascinating aspects of the riots that, that I, that I came across. And I think I mentioned that in the book, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's contrary to what a lot of people might think, you know, but, um, but I guess this, our, our built in survival instincts are probably even more heightened with people who live a life of, you know, maybe daily survival if it's an urban environment sort of a thing, you know? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, we've been talking with Scott Reitz of InternationalTactical.com about lessons learned from his experience during the L.A. riots to help us better prepare to survive during times of civil breakdown. And we have a lot more to get to, including how to avoid being the target of everyone around you when all hell breaks loose, tips on your EDC or everyday carry survival gear that could help you during civil breakdown, and big, huge, giant mistakes that many gun owners make when it comes to real-world personal protection with their firearm. But first, check out this special message. What if everything you knew about how to stop a violent attacker with your gun was wrong? Discover the advanced tactics you must know now to protect yourself and those you love with a firearm. Check out our free book, Stopping Power Secrets. Inside, you'll find such no-hold-barred shockers as 1. The three most common myths and misinformation shoveled out by movies and gun range know-it-alls that could get you killed in a real-life gunfight. 2. The cold, hard truth about your personal weapon's ability to be a one-shot man-stopper. 3. What coroners know about selecting the right ammo for your firearm that you don't. 4. And the simple training trick used by Abrams tank crews and commercial airline pilots that will prepare you for a real attack even better than your best day at the range don't place your family safety in the hands of hollywood fairy tales and hearsay claim your free copy of stopping power secrets now now at www.stoppingpowersecrets.com and now back to the show 
Okay, we're back with Scott Reitz of InternationalTactical.com talking about how to protect yourself and your loved ones during times of civil unrest based on Scott's personal experience during the L.A. riots as a city police officer. Now, we have a lot more to cover, so let's go ahead and jump right back into our interview. Now, Scott, in your in your book, The Art of Modern Gunfighting, you also talk about what happened to Reginald Denny, a truck driver who found himself at the intersection of Franklin and Normandy when he was set on by an angry mob looking to hurt even innocent travelers. In your opinion, what could Reginald have done differently, if if anything, to avoid or mitigate what happened to him? And, and thinking along the lines of, like, escape and evasion, what lessons did you personally learn as a result of being part of the law enforcement response to the riots that you think would be the most valuable to our listeners to avoid that same kind of attack? Well, he was kind of in a real tough predicament. One, he's in a big rig, if you recall. Yeah. And, you know, there's not a whole a lot of acceleration ability. And hindsight is twenty twenty. And, you know, one of the things he could have done is just punched it and started running over people. And God knows what that would have caused. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably would have made it. He might have survived, but God knows what would happen in the aftermath. And he didn't know. <clears throat> the other is he simply just drove into this area, obviously making a delivery or pickup, totally unaware of what was transpiring around him. And imagine if you're driving in a vehicle and you're, let's say you're listening to jazz and you've been on a long trip or whatever, and you're listening to jazz, you're not listening to the news. And all of a sudden you come to an intersection and suddenly there's not a dozen, but maybe several dozen people around you throwing things and you're blocked in by traffic. Uh, There's not much you can do at that point. Uh, You can try and escape, you know, basically to drive you know, and get out of there. But if you hit one person, I guarantee you that mob's going to turn on you. Yeah. And then you have to make a decision. Do you have your family with you and so forth? I mean, that's that's a very hard question to ask. Or, I'm sorry, a very, a very difficult question to answer, I should say, let's stand corrected. And it's just a matter of really paying attention. If I'm, if I'm driving, I'm very much aware of what's going on around me at all times. And basically, you know, a lot of guys have color codes and everything else. But I'm very much aware of what's going on around. If I see a problem developing, I'm just off in the other direction. I don't care if it takes me a long way around. Uh, I'm, that's what I'm going to take. I'm not going to drive into something that I look that, that I deem to be a potential problem. And I think that's a good way for people to operate. If you're in your vehicle driving, you just kind of pay attention to what's going on around you, and you know, just be aware of it. And that that was a very unique, what I call anomalic situation. It just one of these things where he was the D guy in the truck in, the, as you said, the wrong place at the wrong time. And there's not much else that he probably could have done. It's just, it happened. And you saw how quickly they grab him, pull him out. You know, he's trying to talk to them. You can see he's on his hands and knees pleading and they still hit him and throw the brick at his head. And uh, he's lucky he survived. And through no fault of his own, he hasn't hurt anybody. He hasn't done anything to anybody. He's just simply minding his own business, which goes to show you how violent some situations can become. Yeah, I think I guess people need to realize, I, you know, when you when you see they're trying to talk to I me, mean, you and I are rational people, and you know, it's oftentimes I think we assume that other people are going to be just as rational as we are. Like we can, if there's mass panic and chaos, those, you know, that reptilian brain thing is happening where you might not have that rational opportunity to to discuss somebody, hey, man, I'm, I'm just trying to make a delivery, or whether you're with your family or whatever, like, look, I've got my family with me. 
to you, that might seem like a completely rational, like, oh, okay, well, look, don't hurt me because I have my, my wife and my kids with me. But to their brain, especially in that mob mentality, that's not necessarily going to have the pull that you think it's going to have. And, and maybe opening the door up and walking out into a mob to try and talk with them. And I think a lot of people might have that urge to like, you know, that's try and. Uh, yeah. I, you know, in the, in the book, I did talk about when I grew up, I grew in a naval, up in a naval officer's family. And I'd never been across bad guys in my entire life ever. Hmm. And my first two weeks in Wilshire division on probation, 1977, it was a major eye-opener. And the violence and the way that some people thought, the way that some people have absolutely, basically stone-cold sociopaths uh, on, on some of these people that I'd come across was, to me, absolutely remarkable. Hmm. And people that you'd look at them, they'd be watching them do something, and you'd hook them up, and they go, I didn't do that. I said, I just watched them. They go, no, you didn't. And the violence that they perpetrated upon one another was amazing. Now, take that normal, you know, they have no restrictions, no compassion, no remorse about what they've done, and place that into a riot situation. Uh, you're probably not going to be able to reason to any appreciable degree with a riotous mob. That's just probably not going to happen. Your best thing is to try to get yourself and your family out of there anyway. You may stay in the car or you may have to leave the car if it's in a you know blocked position. But trying to reason with the mob, it's not going to happen. It yeah. just isn't going to happen. You just have to get out of there. Yeah. You know, let me let me ask you this. I mean, because those, like you said, that 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 riots spread like in different parts of the city very very quickly. And so, you know, Reginald just happened to drive into an area that was, you know, he didn't he didn't know himself that it was bad. But I would I would think a big rig truck driver would also have a CB or something on. Do you recommend, like, I mean, for this type of thing, if you live in an urban environment or these types of things are happening, would a, like a portable citizen's van radio or a police scanner or something that, would that help somebody to know where the hotspots are, where they spring up to be able to avoid them? Well, it absolutely would. Um, I don't have one. I just, <laughs> just kind of stay out of the way of, of an entire division that might go up. But no, that would probably be a uh, reasonable response. And if you have a police scanner, what you're listening to are real-world uh, generated police calls for service, emergency calls, or at least of an emergency nature. So if you know your area and they're saying, hey, you know, down at uh, you know 103rd New Dillon, guess what? You know, we've got a big riot. Okay, I'm not going to go down there. Yeah. So that gives you real time uh, on a police scanner. Hmm. Yeah. You know, Scott, w with our magazine, we've done a lot of extensive work on on the layers of personal protection and the gear that you should carry or have available to you, especially when it comes to defending yourself and, and facing emergencies and external threats or, or anything, any other practical issues that might occur, especially like in an urban area. Now, I know that police officers are well known for being gear junkies, and I think we all are to some extent. And I'm sure that in the wake of the L.A. riots, you you probably learned several things about the types of like gizmos and gadgets that officers and civilians should be carrying for these types of like instant emergencies like like riots. Can you share with us some of the, maybe like the gear lessons that you'd suggest adding to our everyday carry gear that could help us escape, evade or defend during this type of a, a survival scenario? Yeah, that's kind of an extensive question. First of all, most policemen, um, believe it or not, aren't the people that you might associate with 
they go to a few classes or listen to a podcast such as this and read the magazine, they may be. They are very much in the minority. The vast majority of police officers simply don't care one way or the other. You'd be surprised. Hmm. Absolutely astounded because try to get them to buy a $150 flashlight. Uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, what I found is number one, if you're carrying, like say, concealed weapons, um, I'm not a big fan of simply issuing a concealed weapon if there's no training behind it. Because, one, you don't know how to manipulate it properly. Uh, you probably don't understand the laws to any appreciable degree. And having worked in the courts for the last almost 27 years now, it's amazing how quickly people get themselves into trouble. And there's the old adage, you may win the battle, but not the war. Amen. Yeah. The other thing is that people, and, you know, we get this, just did a concealed carry per, uh, uh, class. You know, guys come out, well, I have this little tiny pistol. Okay. Well, the reason you're carrying a weapon ostensibly in a concealed manner is to defend yourself or your family. I think you would agree with that, yes? Yes. And most probably that the people that are with you are more going to be more of a liability than an asset. You don't have body armor. You're probably not wearing body armor. You have no uh, long arms such as shotgun, rifle, or so forth. No communication, no air support, no backup, no partner. Basically, you're on your own. And if at any point in time you wanted a handgun that you knew inside and out, that you could run at speed, you could go to extreme distance, that you knew that you would work with and have the capacity to neutralize the situation, that's when you want it. And so I carry as a full-size 1911. And always have, uh, you know, when we were allowed to, especially in SWAT. And you have guys out there and they're carrying, you know, five shot, two inch. Okay, good luck. You know, 380, with, uh, seven rounds in a magazine, maybe, or one in the chamber. Oh, good luck. The, and then again, come out and we have a lot of different equipment out here. We have moving targets, hostage tracks, knife attack targets, a lot of equipment that we have built and designed ourselves that's one of a kind. And it puts you into a live fire format in very real, realistic scenarios. And then they come out and they try to solve these with 380s or uh, a very extremely compact 45 and it malfunctions. They can't reload it quickly. The magazine gets hung up. It's just one thing after another. And they go, this isn't working. I go, I know. But if you haven't experienced that type of training, then you walk away being very happy. And a slick ad does not necessarily denote that the weapon system you're buying uh, is going to be effective. It may look good in print. It may look good on a glossy magazine cover, but it, it might be totally ineffective for you, plus you have to have a weapon that fits your hand that you know how to use properly. And that's one of the biggest things, carrying a light with you uh, at all times. Nowadays, we have the light undermount, so carry a light undermount that you can snap on. You can use as a handheld light or snap it on the weapon if you have to. Spare magazines, things such as that, you know, things of that nature. And then within vehicles, you have food supplies, water, blankets, uh, emergency medical kits. We have emergency medical kits that we put together. They're very small, compact, but they've, and then know how to use that as well. Uh, you know, in a situation, first responders can't get to you. You better know how to do, you know, basically combat, combat, uh, medical trauma care. And you've got to be able to do it within seconds because if you don't, you could lose a loved one or yourself. Learn how to self-medicate, how to put on tourniquets and so forth. So very simple things, and it's not being paranoid, it's just very practical and very commonsensical 
And your car can certainly take the extra 30 pounds of weight that you have in the trunk and just leave it there. You don't take it out. It just stays there all the time. So at least you have something to go to should it all go sideways. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, the training to back it up, too. I mean, for like you said, you know, um, you know, those type of emergency responses aren't going to be there for you. They're going to be overwhelmed. So if you are shot or injured or even if it's like a natural disaster and something happens, you know, you can't always count on the ambulance being able to be there in time. And so even having, I mean, nowadays they make like quick clot bandages that are ultra compact, will fit into a cargo pocket. You can carry around with you anytime you want. So if there is an injury, you at least have something to slap on there. But again, knowing how to how to do that stuff or, you know, it makes a big difference. So it makes sense. You know, Absolutely. You know, Scott, a, a big hurdle to getting and practicing realistic tactical firearms training is that a lot of gun owners figure that they already know what they need to know. And the truth is, is that they may have taken some classes, although my guess is that most maybe even haven't taken any classes. They just own the gun. And for the most part, even the more experienced gun owners are really just focused on a little, you know, the occasional trip down to the gun range where they're they're punching some holes in some paper targets. Now, other than that, the training is most likely pretty much at a standstill. So given the lack of people really taking advantage of the proper tactical training out there, what would you say are like the three biggest mistakes that armed civilians tend to make when it comes to defending themselves with a firearm? And what's your advice on, on how to solve those those three things? Well, I would say the number one is a lot of people think that mere ownership denotes expertise. And nothing could be further from the truth. And we get calls all the time, you know, I own this and that, and or I own 100 guns, okay? Uh, as I said, I could own 100 Steinways. It doesn't mean I can play a single one of them. And we get that quite a bit. You have people that think that they know. The old adage, you don't know what you don't know, is so true. And we've had so many individuals who have come to our classes and at the end of just within the first two hours of being with us had will tell us. And unequivocally, we've had this thousands and thousands of times. I can't believe what I didn't know. I can't believe what I just learned. And those are and those are a lot of times the people who are coming in like the five eleven tactical pants and the Glock hat and you know they look the part but you're right it's oh, yeah. like they they learn very quickly when they go through a type of course like you have when they're put to the test they realize what they don't know. Oh my God! And then if I put them in a cold drill, if I put them in actual shooting scenario, and say okay now I'm gonna now I'm gonna put you on in a deposition. I want to know why you did this and this and this, and they suddenly oh my God. You're like a fish out of water, and you just you're literally polaxed, and it doesn't it takes about three or four questions, and I've got you down on your knees. You're just going, oh my god, this is. I, I need to learn how to apply deadly force properly. I need to learn the mechanics. Um, not comprehending when you can, and I, I will say this in all sincerity, it is equally as important to know when not to shoot as it is when to shoot, and a lot of people lose sight of that. And what we're getting a lot of is, and this is translated into some pretty tragic police shootings, is training as if you're a SEAL. And then going out in the police world or, you know, civilian world and then, you know, applying that and suddenly you're held accountable. You know, the SEALs, I've worked with them in the past and they're great guys and I've worked with SEAL Team 6 in the past. You know, these guys are in their own unique war footing. They are in a world of their own. And we're not, despite what you might, some people like to think, 
you know, sitting there and doing Australian peelbacks, you know, with live fire ammunition on ranges with a bunch of civilians you've never seen before is absolutely absurd, but that's where this whole industry is going. And rolling around on your back and doing somersaults, all the stuff you see on YouTube just drives me nuts. I don't even watch it anymore. I can't take it. And I'm looking at a total lack of unprofessionalism when it comes to the application of deadly force simply due to the fact that the people teaching it don't understand it. They're certainly not court qualified. They've never used it. I have uh, on a number of occasions, and I've had to justify it. And it's I've, every single shooting I've been involved in has been well above boards. Uh, you learn a lot from that, and you learn a lot from defending officers. You learn a lot from defending civilians. I worked on murder cases. And a lot of people just think, well, I've got it, and I'm just, if somebody gets in my face, I'm going to kill them. Okay. See what, you know, stand by to stand by, because there are people out there who make a living going after people like that. And everything you've ever owned or worked for can be taken away from you with one mispress of the trigger under the wrong circumstances. Um, safety, my God. The fire safety out there and the way class are taught now is simply appalling. There's a complete lack of it. We have an absolutely flawless safety record after all these years. Not one single person has ever been injured, and that's training overseas, throughout the United States, different different groups, different scenarios, different levels of training. So safety is another thing. People are uh, roughly, I think it's 82,000 people a year will be inadvert, will negligently shot in the United States, not homicides each year, not homicides or anything else. So roughly maybe 200 people today or more are going to shoot themselves or other people inadvertently in the United States. And they're just suggesting negligence because they're completely, just totally unsafe with firearms. It's totally cavalier. And we're very, very, very strict on safety, which is why we have an absolutely flawless safety record uh, for the all the people that we've trained over the years. So safety, so safety, manipulation, loss of deadly force, then tactics, mechanics. And it just goes on and on, low-level light, working high-speed movers, hot situations, in and around vehicles, shooting on the move, transitions, going to alternate positions, learning how to transition from right hand to left hand or left hand to right. I mean, just it, it's overwhelming the amount of stuff that we train and the different classes that we have and the different tiered um, uh, levels of ability that we bring forward. But that's a lifetime of study. I, I will have been behind the, in 2016. I will have been behind the gun now for 40 years. So I've kind of gleaned one or two little uh, bits of knowledge through those 40 years. Yeah, and that's a and so I asked for three things, and I got like 40. <laughs> and I guess you know the whole point of that is that there's a lot that goes into surviving and it's not, nothing is cookie cutter. It's not going to be, okay, your parking lot holdup is going to go like this, or the the flash mob riot is going to go like this. So you're going to step one, step two, step three, done. You might have to use a flashlight. You might have to shoot, you're going to have to shoot on the move likely. You're going to have to know cover and concealment. You're going to need to know your legal responsibility. We talk a lot about that. You're going to need to be able to potentially, you know, if you're injured in your right arm and you're a right-hand shooter, you might need to know, have some experience with shooting left hand. And like we said before, the worst the worst time to buy a gun is during a riot. The worst time to train for realistic experiences is during a riot. That's that's real-world experience, but that's not where you want to get it. You're going to be best prepared by getting this type of training, you know, well in advance. And that's that's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that. But... 
my guess, I mean, what I would say from what you, from what I would glean from what you just said is that really it starts with one step and buying the yeah. gun might be one step, but we've talked about the things that go in after that. And that includes the training and just taking a safety class so that you, I mean, the only thing I can see worse than having to defend yourself in a riot is going to your child's funeral or your children going to your funeral because you simply didn't know the mechanics of a gun and weren't safe with it or something like that, you know? And so it starts with, it starts with the basics. And I think, I think you're right. Like the industry these days has become so kind of fantasy driven that if it's not sexy, who wants to take the class, right? I mean, who, who wants to go to a gun safety class? That's not fun. <laughs> That's not cool. I want to, I want to do somersaults over the hood, you know, like Starsky and Hutch. So, you know, well, it, it makes it, a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, if, if I can, uh, on those three points, one, a lot of the stuff out there are, is smoke and mirrors now. And it's been in marketing, and I'm going to get you in, and I'm going to teach you how to do all this neat stuff that will never really realistically have any kind of application. And it's simply dangerous in a range setting, which is why people have been shot in these classes. Number two, all these thousands of shootings I studied, all the, you know, all the shootings that I've worked on in court, and, and those are extensive when I work on any particular shooting, all shootings are unique unto themselves. They all have their own permutations. They all have their own set of variables. So what I have learned is this. Overall, the greater skill sets which you possess, the greater degree to which you can allow a situation to degrade before you finally take action. And if you possess higher skill sets, most probably the course of action you take will be the correct one. Where we get into problems, and you see this even with police shootings, is if you have a lower grade of skill sets, we have problems in decision-making, overreaction, and so forth. You know, I was an LAPD SWAT for 10 years. Our instructors are LAPD SWAT that work with us. We don't get in that many shootings. And that's since 1968. And I did a calculation the other day and came out with the amount of hours since 1968. If you look at the experience of LAPD SWAT since 1968 to present, I did the calculation. I'm going to do an article on this for a newsletter. But it comes out to 10,293,000 hours of experience Jeez. since 1968. Wow. So when people say, well, why do you use this technique or that? Or why do you advocate training in this manner and understanding deadly force? Well, I guess it's because not myself personally, but all the guys and where this, where Deep Platoon is now has gotten here through 10,293,000 hours of experience. Yeah, that's that's a small bit of experience, I'd say. I think so. So we've learned what works and what doesn't and how to drive it forward so that that our students get the most out of it. And I don't want people to be in bad. You know, I don't want good citizens to find themselves on the wrong end of the stick in, in a legal format. I don't want them injured. I don't want them making mistakes. I want their application of deadly force, their manipulation of the weapon to be morally, you know, ethically and judiciously, you know, appropriate. Yeah. And Brett, uh, who, you know, my wife, who, you know, heads up the uh, corporation, same way. And she feel we all feel the same way. And we're very dedicated. The minute I don't enjoy teaching students, I don't care, then I'll stop doing. It. But I actually care. It's not about so much the money as it is we're providing, I think, an invaluable service, not only to civilians, but military and law enforcement as well. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I don't see that retirement day coming coming anytime soon for you. Dan. I think there's a lot Probably more training not. to do. Yeah. Scott, this is great information. Um, this is, this is a really, 
very rare look into one of like those worst case scenario threats that we talk about. And unfortunately, in today's times, it's it's not as rare as some people may think. So so thank you for your personal insights and your advice. Look, everyone. Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, this has been great. Um, look, everyone. This is, as you can tell, I mean, this is the same type of real world analysis and tactical training that Scott puts into his book, uh, The Art of Modern Day Gunfighting, as well as all of his courses. And you're going to find more information about all of Scott's training opportunities on his website. So make sure you go check it out over at www.internationaltactical.com. So definitely go over there, check out the training schedule, see everything out there. You know now that this is all based on real-world experience, and that's very rare to find. So so go check it out. And hey, until our – Hey, Jeff. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to thank you very much for the interview mm-hmm. and let you know that hopefully right around uh, – hopefully by the end of this year, our second book on the pistol will be coming out. Art of Modern Gunfighting, Volume 2. I just want to let you know. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I, I do remember reading something about that, and I'm looking forward to that. Very cool. So so definitely. And you'll find that will be on, on Scott's website as well. So another reason to go over there, stay up, stay current, go check in there from time to time, see what courses are going on, and um, and definitely wait for the next book to come out. So good stuff. All right. Until our next Modern Combat Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.